Today on Backroom Politics, the latest out of Damascus, Syria, and the use of chemical chemical weapons by the... Let's try this again. Take two. Today on Backroom Politics, the latest out of Damascus, Syria, as the Syrian government uses chemical weapons and the U.S. contemplates a retaliation. We're going to talk about that also. We're going to talk about the Treasury Secretary, Jack Lew, and his latest stern warning to Congress to act now as the debt ceiling now comes in October. And we're going to talk about the U.S. taking the wrong side, possibly in Egypt, the latest out of Cairo, and then 50 years after the Civil Rights March on Washington, how fragile is the state of race relations in the U.S.? This and Tell Me a Story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is time for the best of the top show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hey, hello, and, and Justin, thank you for getting us off to such a smooth start. Oh, it's a gift. Yes. <laughs> uh, to my 11 o'clock, he is the former floor chief for then-Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of Government Affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob. Hello, Justin. Good to be here. Glad to have you. To my 1 o'clock, she is the former general counsel to the Homeland Security Committee under then-Chairman Benny Thompson. She is the former Obama appointee to the Maritime Administration. She is the Honorable Denise Kraft. Hello, Hello. Denise. Hi, Justin. And to my right, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce, who has served at least, at last count, under four presidents. He is a longtime Senate staffer, a longtime Washington insider, and a very distinguished and charming fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Justin, hello. And I just realized I'm the only one here who's not honorable. Damn it. <laughs> and that being said, <laughs> let's get right into it. We have got a full slate here today from Shelley's back room. Uh, we're going to start on the now continuing developing story out of Syria. Uh, within the past uh, 72 hours, it has been revealed that there is, according to White House Press Secretary uh, Jay Carney, little question that chemical weapons were used by the Syrian regime uh, against its own people, specifically against the uh, rebel forces fighting for control in Syria. Uh, however, the collateral damage has included various civilians and various numbers of children that have been either killed or severely injured. It has gotten the ire of just about everybody in the international community. But now President Obama has a very, very, uh, very uh, sensitive decision he's got to make 
do we get involved, do we not get involved? This following comments by British Prime Minister David Cameron, and he stated that the, Brit the British government and British forces are committed to stopping the atrocities that are happening in Syria. Uh, this has been backed by support by the German government and by the French government. But now we have to look at the very serious question of exactly what's happening in Syria and what do we do. Joining us now on the phone is our international relations expert. He is Dr. Ralph Winnie, Vice President of the Eurasia Center. Ralph, how you doing? Yeah. I'm doing great. Glad to be with everyone. Thanks for joining us, Ralph. Hey, uh, Ralph, I'm going to start with you. We got you on the line. Um, this is a very, very sensitive subject that we're dealing with right now. Uh, internationally, right. we're starting to see a coalition come together with the French, the British, the Germans, most of your NATO countries. Uh, we're, we're starting to see some backroom support coming out of some of our Arab allies, but how sensitive has the Syrian question gotten right now internationally? Well, Justin, you're correct. There are currently high-level conversations between the Obama administration and the British, French, and German governments, which is part of an intense effort to build a broad coalition outside the United Nations. And I think the key here is that um, there's no longer a serious debate um, within the Obama administration that that Assad government is using chemical weapons. You have Kerry that has come out and said in no unquestionable terms that the Syrian government is using chemical weapons. And it is very, very important now um, uh, for the Obama administration to not describe their efforts as an attempt to topple the Assad government, but to penalize the widespread use of chemical weapons and deter their future use and proliferation. That is what's going to galvanize support uh, for an international coalition. Well, you know, Alan Moore, uh, we saw Secretary of State uh, John Kerry yesterday in his speech regarding the Syrian issue uh, come out in, in very stern and strong language, including calling the use of chemical weapons uh, by the Syrian government a moral obscenity. Uh, this is a tone that we haven't heard come out of Foggy Bottom in a while, particularly out of somebody who's got a good ear to the international uh, relations efforts by all of our allies in this issue. Uh, this, is, this, this is going to demand action by Washington, don't you think? Well, it looks like uh, action is coming. Um, I guess I would take a slight issue with the characterization of the certainty with which uh, people are allegedly saying that that Assad did it. Um, there, there, there seems to be indisputable evidence that chemical weapons were used. Um, it's not clear, A, that Assad ordered it, or B, that rogue generals, rogue military people might have ordered it, or C, there's still a lingering question about why would they do this given that all the red line talk and and the potential outrage around the world. They have a lot of capability to kill people with conventional means. They've killed about 100,000 of them. Um, and uh, hence uh, the, the counter accusation that at least uh, some of the Syrians are making. I don't give it a lot of credibility on the one hand, but I think it's worth mentioning and reminding us that they said the rebels have done this because they want to turn the world against us. It's... Uh, it seems indisputable that chemical weapons have been used and were, were, were used to kill a lot of people. 
it's not clear exactly who ordered it up. Um, but, but that begs a, a very a very sensitive question, though, in this region. Ralph, I want to go to you. And if, in fact, the scenario that Alan's talking about is playing out, that we're not sure who in the government side utilized chemical weapons against the Syrian people, if it was, uh, if it was the Syrian president, Bashar uh, al-Assad, if it was him, then we've got a tyrannical president in Syria that's willing to keep power at all costs. However, if it is a rogue set of military leaders inside the government that did this without the president's knowing, then we've got a military sector and uh, the president's lost control of his military. Either one of those causes a very sensitive issue internationally. What's the ramifications of this? How do we handle both sides? Right. I mean, I, I think what, what what's happening now is the U.N. weapons inspector team that's currently in Syria, it's not, they're not going to assign blame for any potential chemical weapons attack. What they're going to do is just investigate whether one occurred. And this makes any chance the Security Council will back international action in this two-year civil war even less likely. You've got the Syrian foreign minister saying that the U.N. should be given a chance to investigate before any rush to judgment is made. And you've got the Russians that are saying any intervention in Syria is a grave violation of international law. So you have all these factors uh, playing in to a scenario that uh, could, uh, could essentially get muddled without any direct evidence of uh, uh, Assad being involved in a chemical uh, attack. I do think certainly the Syrians are not, the Syrian government is not going to go down with a fight. They, are, they would hope that the Russians and maybe the Iranian back guard would, would help them in, involve, if there was any kind of uh, military attack uh, by uh, the U.S. Uh, and any other countries. Alan Moore. It seems pretty clear that the Security Council, as Ralph says, will not will not take an action uh, to condemn uh, uh, Assad. The Chinese uh, typically just stand aside on these things and say, we don't intervene. The Russians have huge stakes, huge stakes in Syria, billions of dollars invested, a port there, and no desire to have another uh, group of Islamic radicals closer to their border. So there, there's a long history of a, of a relationship between Russia and Syria, so they want to be pushed to the limit. Having said that, it's possible that what the UN could do is condemn the use of chemical weapons without ascribing responsibility. That wouldn't open the door for the UN to say, okay, we've sanctioned it, but it would be an interesting possibility and an interesting move that would provide a small amount of cover for the countries. Uh, led by the U.S., obviously, and maybe as many as 30 or more others who might who might sign on their moral support, even if they don't provide uh, any significant. Yeah, resources. but Alan, any resolution coming out of the Security Council that does not assign blame for the use of chemical weapons basically weakens the entire aspect of that resolution, doesn't no. it? No. It, it, we know we're not going to get that. We know we're, that, that the Russians and the Chinese would veto. So the question is, is there a gesture that the wider UN could make condemning the use of chemical weapons without ascribing blame? Ralph, Ralph yeah. I, I think what was interesting is that as President Obama has been weighing options for responding to the suspected chemical weapons attack in Syria, 
His national security aides have been studying the NATO air war in Kosovo as a possible blueprint for acting without any kind of mandate from the United Nations. And that will be interesting to see if that strategy is adopted. Um, again, they, the Obama administration is saying it's not about regime change. It's about penalizing the widespread use of chemical weapons and deter and he, them, deter their future use and proliferation. These so um, we'll have to stay tuned Ralph, and Ralph, see how on. this uh, scenario plays out. Ralph, hold on. Denise Krupp, you disagree. First of all, studying, studying Kosovo is important, but the difference between what's going on here in Kosovo is the fact that Kosovo was surrounded by European countries, was surrounded by people that were friendly to us. Syria is not in an area that we've got a lot of friends in. We've got Syria, you've got Egypt, you've got Lebanon, you've got Iran, you've got Turkey. It's a whole whopping mess in a lot of those countries. So if we land and if we start dropping bombs, in Syria, there's going to be much different reaction in the surrounding areas than there was in Kosovo. By talking about surrounding areas, I'm talking about gas masks that are going to have to start coming out in Israel, because if we drop it on Syria, the Syrians are going to drop it on the Israelis. By the way, let's not forget about what's going on with the Kurdish population in Syria and how the Kurds are going to take advantage of this. Turkey is going to get a little concerned about what's going on, and if you think Iran's going to sit down and say, yippee, let me just sit back and eat some popcorn, that's crazy talk. There are a lot of people that are going to take advantage of this situation. But, we, but you know, we, this is a, a very difficult task for the Obama administration, not long into his second term as president. Uh, this, you've got Susan Rice, the national security advisor to the president, who some have criticized really doesn't have the, the um, it, whether you want to call it the bona fides, whether you want to call it the practical knowledge to be able to truly advise the president on something like this. And then the question then goes is our new UN ambassador, uh, uh, Susan Power, Samantha. Uh, Samantha Power, rather, does Samantha Power have the authority or does she have the backbone to go up to the UN and call for accountability in this issue? Bob Hines. Well, she's certainly going to do whatever the president wants her to do. The question is what the president going to do. And it's a terrible problem. Now, Congressman Al. It seems to me that the president. <clears throat> reluctantly has been dragged into saying something a little bit stronger and a little bit stronger and a little bit stronger, and I don't see, I think he's at a point where I don't see how he backs down from it, so that there's a sense all these nuances we've been talking about may not really come to play when he has to live up to his comments on the red line and so yeah. forth. Yeah, he's, he, is, he has gone pretty far in saying what, that he would do something if the red line was crossed, and it, it's, it seems very likely that it was being crossed. There, it is possible, of course, there could be some rogue getting a hold of chemicals, yeah, weapons. Yeah, have a hell of a time explaining that it, the yeah. red line wasn't. Yeah, well, it, it has to be. It was certainly crossed, and the, it, it's possible that there might be some uh, rogue general got some stuff, but if there is, the president of Syria would be very wise to grab him by the neck and throw him in a hole someplace and say, do in a very public way. Yeah, the Alan, idea that there's anybody but the government doing this is just, I think, unlikely. Alan Moore. Well, let, let's review what the president exactly said about red line. Here's the quote. This was a year ago. The president said, quote, a red line for us is we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized, that would change my calculus. That's the 
statement. It is very imprecise. What's a whole bunch mean? What's changes calculus mean? So we start with the, the imprecise nature of his own words. We have to find it. The press has to find it. It's everybody's comfortable. We cross the red line. Well, when you look back at his words, it's not so clear. There's a second big problem. I mean, Denise obviously talked about the problems in the region and what other countries might do. There's a whole other problem here that the president is every bit as much aware of as well, and that is, oh, what's the American people think? Well, that's a, that's a whole, very, other, that's a whole other issue. It's a whole other issue, but it's highly relevant here. And, and last week, 60% of Americans in polls said, we don't want to do anything there. 9% nine said, we need to act more strongly. 31 said, we don't know. Then when asked, what if chemical weapons were used? The, the people, the number that wanted to act was went up to 24 percent, and those who said don't act was around 50, and everybody else saying we don't know. Reuters just came out with a poll yesterday, after the announcement uh, by Secretary of State John Kerry. Reuters poll shows a, similar to what you're saying, but as of yesterday, with the latest information out there, 51 percent of Americans say don't get involved. So this puts the president and his national security team in a very difficult position. Denise Krupp. But just, I want you to break down that 51%. Is it 51% of the general population, or does that 51% include the U.S. military? I mean, when we are sending troops, as the Washington Post reported last week, to combat with PTSD because they're the only ones we have, do you really think that our boys and girls are going to say, yes, I really want to go and do maybe two or three more tours? Because this isn't going to be we're going well, to drop this, a bomb. This, I mean, this, this brings up a very valid point because we've got uh, Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel, who is who is very reluctant to put boots on the ground using supporting forces, i.e., Navy fleet operations, to use it, like what is being called for right now. The latest coming out of the White House is the possibility of using uh, ship-based cruise missiles uh, to target military holds and strong compounds. In Syria, that's one aspect. But Chuck Hagel's been on, has been saying throughout, I think we need to be cautious with on how we use our power. And I'm paraphrasing. Well, and, and I agree with you. We have to be very cautious because just because we have the ability to drop bombs does not necessarily mean that we have the ability or the desire to follow them up with people off the ground. Ralph Winnie. Yeah, and certainly I think the administration is working very hard to build a coalition support within NATO allies and also in the Middle East. Um, but certainly the, uh, the red line has been crossed and the Obama administration is going to have to act. And obviously the question is how do they act in a way that's going to um, send a message that uh, chemical weapons, the use of chemical weapons will not be tolerated or is it just going to create um, more instability and unrest in, in Syria and the greater Middle East? But we're seeing, Bob, we're seeing just in Congress a divide that's kind of unusual. We're seeing Republicans and Democrats both calling for uh, restraint in using military force in Syria. You've got some key Republicans saying, hey, this has gotten way too complicated, way too complex. We need to just back out and let the cards fall where they may. Is that the right approach? I don't know if it's, I don't know that we can just stand by and watch what has happened and just put it aside and say, well, that was just the way Mr. Assad wants to do business. He wants to gas his people. Who cares? I don't think that, that that's a viable attitude to take. 
I can understand any member of Congress, any member, from the, the, the right to the left and in between, being reluctant to do anything that looks like putting getting boots on the ground, as, as Lee said, that's very unlikely. I suspect that probably there would be a reluctant uh, support for the president uh, in the sense that they wouldn't be eager with it, but I think a majority of the Congress, if he decides that he's going to have to send some cruise missiles some, someplace on some, you know, support to, to support destruction of the chemical weapons supply, if you will, I think something like that is probably something that could be supported by the members of Congress, and I think most of the public in America would, too. But this place is, uh, and I'm going to go to you, Alan, uh, your time in the Senate, worked with some of the Senate we're about to talk about, you know, John McCain and his coalition, who have come out and saying, look, we've got to take action, every day we don't take action, more people are going to be killed, this, cre this creates a bigger and more clearer present danger to U.S. security. But he's fighting people on his own side, as in Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio saying, not our fight. We don't have a dog in this battle. Well, this is the dilemma on, on both sides. It's reflected, it's reflected in these figures we just talked about in, in terms of the public. The thing that makes chemical weapons different is they kill indiscriminately. They kill women and children. We, we, we all saw the pictures. And if we allow chemical weapons to be used, we... The rest of the world stand by and do nothing. Um, it, the, the fear is that that encourages others to want to get their hands on some or to use some if uh, if all else fails. So it has been uh, 25, 26 years since uh, since any were used. Um, that was Saddam Hussein uh, 25 years ago. Um, and and the question so there, everyone has an interest in trying to prevent. Um, weapons of mass destruction, which chemical weapons are, uh, from being used. Now, having said that, what do we do? There are differences of opinion. There is the notion that you know we don't we we can't possibly get into another fight. We can't control it. And if we do, I don't think if we the, the cruise missiles that, that what we're likely to do is have one day, maybe two at the most and take out military installations. We won't try to take out chemical weapons because that will unleash chemical weapons potentially in ways right. that could harm a lot of people. But we can damage particular military facilities. We can do that from a distance with both sea and air-based cruise missiles. Now, what it will trigger, though, is potentially reaction among other countries and from, from Syrians themselves. They have friends. They have the ability to go wreak havoc in other in other parts of the world, at, at U.S. embassies, conceivably there are people here in America. Even we don't know what we unleash. Everybody says no boots on the ground, no boots on the ground, no boots on the ground, no boots on the ground. Oh, gosh, here's a scenario we didn't anticipate. Right, and those things happen. But, but Ralph, when you know when we talk about the use of chemical weapons, I mean there have been several U.N. treaties, there have been several U.N. resolutions calling for the non-proliferation of chemical weapons, and many of those signed by China and Russia. How does China and Russia back out of condemning Syria for the use of chemical weapons when they've, they've kind of painted themselves into a little bit of a diplomatic corner, have they not? Well, uh, certainly I don't think China and Russia look very good in the eyes of the Western world. Um, what Russia's position is, is uh, you have to look at what happened in Iraq and Libya. Um, and they don't want 
more bloodshed and the same sort of what they consider a catastrophe, uh, which which uh, they claim previously occurred during the interventions in Iraq and Libya. So the Russians' position is we need to just stay out of Syria altogether. That being said, I think if the if the U.S. does engage in militarily in Syria, they're going to have to focus on disarming and disabling the National Defense Force, which is a mainly Alawite paramilitary group that was instrumental in enabling the uh, Assad regime to regain control of territory captured by the rebels. And this defense force has really been a crucial factor in Assad's rebound from last summer when um, it looked like his regime was on the verge of being toppled. So um, I think the Obama administration recognizes and understands how important um, getting uh, disarming the National Defense Force is going to be if they're going to have any kind of successful intervention in Syria. At the well, same time, recognizing that they're not focusing on regime change, but preventing the proliferation and use of, nuke, of uh, chemical weapons. Well, the, the question of the, the question of using military force has also come up on the Hill as far as the, as far as Congress saying that they want a full briefing before any buttons are pushed. Uh, we got word late last night that those briefings have started, but Congressman Al, uh, how deep are they going to have to go in these briefings to Congress to satisfy Congress? To, for the use of force in Syria on this one? Probably 535 different depths that they need to go to uh, to satisfy everybody. <clears throat> but it's going to be difficult. It, this occurs to me, and it's a bit of a sidebar. <clears throat> if, if you consider uh, the senator from Arizona to be kind of your conventional republic conservative, and he's kind of taking what you would expect conservative Republicans say. He says, we've got, to, we've got to do something. We've got to take some action. You move farther right, and you run into Mr. Rubio, and he doesn't want to. Now, this is kind of a strange division within the Republican Party, and I'm wondering why, you know, I mean, are the, are the new conservatives less uh, Interested in in all the strong defense and, and all of that Republican rhetoric, or do they see this totally differently? Denise Krupp? I personally think it's a difference in background. I mean, John McCain came from three generations, about four generations of uh, military leadership, and he spent what five to six years with the POW in Vietnam. I mean, he sacrificed himself uh, for yep. the American people. Yeah. Marco Rubio has never been in the military. Ted Cruz has never been in the military, and they don't understand um, what a it's like to be in the military. And b, I'm not sure they understand how you can use the military as a means to uh, promote the U.S. government and also to show uh, power. I mean, there there are different ways that you can show power. You can show it militarily. You can show it economically. You can show it diplomatically. Um, and also going to cost money. And that's, you know, the thing I want to put down as a tip here is that, you know, we're going to talk in, in a couple of minutes about Jack Lou saying that uh, we're going to hit the debt ceiling. Well, if we're going to hit the debt ceiling in October, what are we cutting now if we're going to start dropping bombs in Syria next week? Well, we're, we're coming up to the break right now. I, I want to continue this discussion after the break because one of the things I want to look at is, is, is exactly the, the role of the Obama administration, the key players, and is President Obama really leading from behind? It looks like we're constantly playing catch-up. We're going to talk about this when we come back. Uh, Ralph, can you, uh, can you stay with us for another segment? 
Uh, sure. Great. Uh, this is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town, and I, I tell you, when I am back in town, or when any of my friends are back in town, or heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're talking today uh, in our second segment, uh, continuing the discussion from our first half hour about uh, what's going on, the latest uh, news coming out of Syria, the uh, Assad regime using chemical weapons against their own people and a possible allied reaction to those actions. Uh, I, I want to go back for a second and, and look at uh, the key players here. It, it seems like there's almost some inter-administration fighting going on between uh, some who have seen service, i.e. Chuck Hagel, uh, and those who have not seen service, i.e. Susan Rice and Samantha Power. Our Secretary of State. Is Secretary of State has seen, has seen service. John Kerry, obviously, uh, a veteran of, of Vietnam. But it, it almost seems like we're, we're, we're getting advice 
from folks who have not served, who have not seen military service, who have not seen the horrors of war, and we're also briefing people. We just talked about it during the break that there are now less service members that have been part of the military or have former military service. You don't seem to think that that's a big deal. Look, uh, we've got people who we've got people who who have served who continue to be rather hawkish, and you have people who have served who are very dovish. Uh, and and it's also true that the smallest number in history of members of service, at least in the last hundred years, um, uh, actually served in the military. It's it, we, with an all-volunteer force, members of Congress and senators, yes, thank you. Um, it is not something that is part of uh, most people's experience anymore, particularly since we went to the all-volunteer force. So the younger folks, most of them, uh, never served. But that doesn't disqualify them from uh, from uh, having a position, listening, listening to veterans, listening to family members, listening to their colleagues, listening to all the military advisors who come forward. It's There's a deep divide here, but it's not a divide over whether or not people served. There is a, there, and it doesn't even break down, as Al is pointing out, in the parties. You've got, you've got both, you've got people on, in both parties who are on both sides of the issue of, of Syria. I'll tell you one thing that they have in common. They're all paying attention to what the constituents say. And, and that is an unavoidable requirement of, uh, of people who are in elected office, uh, including the president. But Denise, this, this brings up a, a, good, a good point that Alan talks about, is that the constituents, they're all listening to the constituents, whereas we have to believe that the briefings are more than likely going up to Congress are more than likely classified. They're getting certain points of information that are not going to be uh, available to the general electorate. Does it make sense that we now have an electorate that's driving our military and foreign policy in, in the use of force right now? Justin, it's our electorate that's going to get shot at. So if you can't... Well, what do you, what do you, what do you, you can't tell me that the farmer in Kansas is going to get shot at. Justin, there is a distinct possibility that we cannot and will not be able to drop those bombs and run. So we need to be ready to be able to say we're going to drop and follow up. And if we're going to have to do that, then we have to be able to explain to the American public why it is in their interest and why it's in our national security interest for us to land and get into Syria. But and if we cannot do that then we should not be doing that. But Bob Hines, how are we able to do that with, you know, the classified intelligence briefings that we're getting in, in Congress, that the intel community is providing to the White House, and still keep a certain sense of, whether you want to call it clarity or a certain sense of, of understanding that, quite frankly, a majority of Americans don't get it. Well, going back as... Uh, Going back to the late 30s and the early 40s in, with the Nazis moving in Europe, Roosevelt was in the minority in his views of what had to be done. Uh, he, 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 he laid his case out to the public. He did, he did everything he could. And it was, it, it, was, it was not until Pearl Harbor that the, public, the United States public was willing to decide to go to war. And it wasn't the Nazis who dropped the bombs on on. on, on uh, Hawaii. The fact of the matter is, the, the public naturally feels, geez, we don't want to get into a war. We're, we're in two of them now anyway. We're trying to get out of them. The last thing we want is more is more fighting. And it's going to be very difficult for any president. I can't imagine the most popular president you could imagine 
who had the same situation in front of him today that Mr. Obama has, try to explain to the American people and say, oh yeah, that's a great idea. This is a very difficult problem because it doesn't appear to have any react, any touch with America. It doesn't, I mean, Syria has never attacked us, quote unquote. Syria is just some country over there in the Middle East that is a crazy place and everybody is fighting. But and Bob, Bob crazy. One, one could make the argument, Bob, that says that, you know, George W. Bush, president, 43rd president, had the same difficult decisions to make when he had actionable intelligence that was not widely available to the public from not just our own intelligence community, but our allies' intelligence community saying that we had a regime in Iraq, in Saddam Hussein, who was actively proliferating not nuclear weapons, but weapons of mass destruction, including chemical weapons. It all turned out to be wrong. Well, wait a minute. minute. But those are the decisions that presidents have Whether it turns out to be wrong or not, if if you believe the evidence that it's there, you have to decide what you're going to do. Mr. Bush decided to go in. He found out that there were no weapons. Uh, and it, and, it, and cost yeah. him a lot of popularity. Yeah. And, I su- and I suspect if you go into uh, Syria, you won't find one nuclear weapon. Right. But there's a lot of chemical weapons which you can use on the ground locally, and that's what happens. Did he scratch? I want us to keep focusing on the men and women who are serving today. And, and the reason I say I want us to focus is because as a spouse of a former service member, I mean, I can't tell you how happy I was when he came home. You can't tell me you've got a lot of spouses that are going, yay, my husband and wife are about to go to war again. I mean, they're looking forward to their spouses coming home. They're looking forward to them being able to say, I will be here for Christmas. I will be here for Thanksgiving. I mean, these men and women have had multiple deployments, five, six, seven deployments. Do you think they're going to say, yes, I want them to keep on going? No, but but Denise, you're talking about a full military intervention. You're talking about boots on the ground, supported by naval and air forces. And we need we, to be ready for that, because if we're not, then shame on us. I, I disagree, Congressman Hill. Following on on what, what Denise has been saying, you know, how many times can you send somebody back into a war? Uh, how long can they have the mental stability to fight the war? So does this bring up the draft? No, no. I, I, I think that's a, I, I think that's a long shot, Al. If if we put boots on the ground and we haven't got enough, what are you going to do? Ask for angels? But this. But again, Alan Moore, go ahead. Just to to Al's point, um, there are very, very, very few silver linings to the recession that this government has been in, that this country has been in since 2007. The one that I can think of is that we have been able to meet all of our uh, recruiting objectives in the military because there are so few jobs available. It's a sad kind of statement. I don't think we're on the verge of going back to the draft. I have a whole different view of the draft. I, I'm a believer in national service. I mean, I think that, that, that when, we, yeah. when we say less than 2% of the people have to serve in the military and everybody else gets a free pass, I think that's very unhealthy for this country. Um, but 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 I, it, you know the, the the fact of the matter it, it's certainly true that there's that there is an enormous amount of fear concern hesitation most particularly by the family of those who have served um, or who are serving in the military and might be called to serve. Having said that, um, that, that's a very important factor 
but it can't determine, can't it, determine it, 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 every 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 decision that we make. In this particular case, what I think is what, what we're we're certainly seeing all the steps come into place for a one or two day surgical cruise missile strike, and a lot of prayer, a lot of prayer that it doesn't lead to something that we can't anticipate. We can we can anticipate hundreds of different possibilities, scenarios, and so on. We can't anticipate them all. And as Denise says, one of the things that could happen is a series of domino-like steps that would force us to send people individually back into harm's way on the ground. We can re- we can we can reduce the probabilities of that. We can be convinced that it won't happen. We can never be a hundred. But we're talking certain. about but we're talking about a scenario that only involves the U.S. Ralph Whitty, what are the chances yeah, that yeah. should we go into a military strike, surgical or full military engagement? Can we depend on the British, the Germans, and the French to back us up or support us in those roles? Or are we wishing to... Well, I think right now there is strong support for some form of intervention uh, in Syria uh, if you were to pull the people in Britain, France, and Germany. But I think they're going through the same issues that the U.S. is going through, um, confronting the the prospect of asking voters to um, bite the bullet and support another military engagement in the Middle East uh, at a time when... Domestic concerns are prevailing. So that's so that's, that's what, what, what leaders of, Ger- of Germany, France, and, and Britain are going to have to be confronted with. I mean, certainly, certainly, I think the Obama administration is taking the right tack and saying, look, it's not about regime change. It's about uh, penalizing and punishing the use of chemical weapons and ensuring that these weapons are are not used again to kill to kill civilians. But certainly. We have we have that issue of support from the American people, and Obama's going to have to be very clear with the American people about what the true objective is in order to counter people like Justin Amash that are saying we need to get permission from Congress, that this may be an unjust, uh, unjust war. Um, you know what is the a national what is the national interest for America to a- a intervene in Syria? So these are all considerations that are going to affect any kind of intervention in Syria. And when you have Chuck Hagel saying the U.S. will only support an intervention that has a legal justification to it, it, it sort of uh, creates an additional element that has to be considered, which is why aides were looking at the. Uh, the uh, military or the uh, uh, the Kosovo uh, campaign uh, many right. years ago. So, right. Um, these are all interesting uh, I- issues that are going to have to be uh, analyzed, and we'll, uh, we'll see how it plays out. Denise Crap. First, we're going to have to rely on ourselves. The European military has been decimated, even more than ours has. And two, this directly impacts on the budget. Because last week, the military members, especially those who had about 17 years in, we're getting letters from the military saying, we'd like you to retire now. And we're going to give you incentives. So we don't want you to go to the full 20. We want you to cut out at 17 so we can cut the budget. The military has already figured out ways to cut the budget. So if we're all of a sudden going to start having to keep these people in because of any possible conflict, we're going to have to figure out ways to cut other pieces of the administration's budget. This isn't a separate, you know, little parallel universe. Everything relates to one another, and it's my hope that they figure out what they're going to start cutting down. Well, wait a minute. Are you, are you telling me, Denise, that, you know, 
we have to sacrifice, or, or I'm, let me rephrase, what, what I'm hearing from you is, is that the sacrifice of an ad program and the effect that might have in lieu of supporting, keeping members of the military at an active readiness, it, that's not a good toss-out? Justin, what I'm saying is that the House Republicans, not regardless, House, Senate, everybody's been focusing on sequestration, okay? Right. So you've got everybody focusing on the budget. You've got the fact that we've, we're going to hit the debt ceiling in October. So unless you're going to tell me we're going to raise the debt ceiling, which I don't think is going to happen because we don't have the votes of the House, the Senate, or the White House, then something else is going to have to happen. So what is going to have to happen, and how are they going to negotiate it out? Because I'm hoping they're thinking about that now. Alan Moore? Well, um, the, way, the way they are approaching this is that it would be very limited. The money involved, it, it sounds weird. You know, we're probably talking less than less than a hundred million dollars. It's you know that's a that's a point one yeah. in, uh, in in government budgeting. Um, it's just that the unintended unexpected consequences that we can't foresee, which are always present, and in recent years have not worked out very well for us. Uh, uh, are, are something we have to think about. It is absolutely true, as Denise says, if this happens, it's all with U.S. material and capability. But I believe there will be a coalition, so-called, or allies willing to identify with the e effort in the neighborhood of 30-plus countries. But big deal. They say, yeah, we're all for you. Go to it. We're behind you. We're, be <laughs> we're behind you. And uh, and we're rooting for you. And then if things go south, um, good luck. Um, but but the, the the domestic politics is not great in any in, in in European countries either any more than in and in the U.S. Everybody's gun shy. Everybody's nervous. Um, but if if you talk about uh, the use of a chemical weapon, gassing civilians, and talk about that as a a red line that a country cannot crossover, then is this going to be another example of us uh, carrying a big stick and then doing nothing with it? And and it's the, the president, what, what we have not said is whatever happens here, we have got to see more of the president talking about it and explaining it. It looks like we're going to take these surgical strikes and hope for the best and what, what, whether we do or whether we back off, he's got some explaining to do, and he needs to start doing it. He's got to use that bully pulpit and, and help the people understand what the objective is, why this is different, why it matters that 350 people died last week from chemical weapons, and that's going to cause us to go in when 99,700 people have died in the last two years. And that didn't prompt us to go in. But, but you know, but the question that keeps coming up is, it's one thing using chemical weapons against an attacking force, but the collateral damage seems to be larger in this instance of, of chemical warfare, where we're seeing pictures of dead children, dead civilian women, and dead noncombatants. That's got to be a, a moral struggle for not just this administration, but for also our allies. Bob Hines? Look, it's a hard time. It's a hard decision. 
I honor the president for being cautious, but I, I fundamentally believe that we are going to have to be re respond, we and our allies, at least in a surgical strike from, you know, from uh, either air or sur surface uh, missiles from, you know, from ships. Denise Kraft. And, and just, I don't want you to think we shouldn't go in. What I'm trying to say is that if we do make the decision to go in, then I hope to goodness that we have gained this out to make sure that we have addressed every single contingency. It's the contingencies that are going to get us into trouble. Well, I, you know, I, I, I'm as critical of the administration outside of the show or even on this show as anybody uh, in, in certain areas. But I, I will say it seems to me that the advisors advising the president, and, and, and the two in particular, John Kerry and uh, Secretary of Defense Chuck Hagel, who have actively seen combat in their time, uh, are the ones that are actively saying, look, this is not a full military engagement. We cannot go all in militarily. What we've got to do is look at the technology, look at the resources we have, and use the, you know, work smarter, not harder militarily, instead of just going all in boots on the ground, air and naval forces. I do believe that to be the case. Now, Bob Lyons. Well, I think that's exactly where we're going to end up. I think that's where we should. I don't see any reason to put American troops in there. My guess is that situation over there is so unstable and so, you know, fluid that it's not going to take a whole lot to push it over. Well, I don't know whether anybody around this table remembers the reference I'm making to, but we did get very close to me. I mean, singing, coming in on a drone and a prayer. Well, uh, that, I mean, drones are obviously one of the technologies and one yeah. of the resources that they'll probably look at. But, Ralph Whitty, I, I want to go back to uh, the, the infrastructure of the national security ad advisors that the president has. And, and namely, the, literally, the U.N. ambassador, uh, Samantha Power, has literally been thrown into the lion's den. Does she have enough political clout internationally and at the UN to help make the case to get everybody on board? Well, I well, think there's I think certainly there's strong support in the West, West uh, the Western, Western European countries, countries for some sort of intervention. Uh, whether you uh, want to call it a surgical proportional strike, right. Senator Corker is recommending to let the, let the Assad the regime know that we're not going to uh, put up with, their, with the use of chemical weapons. But I think she's also going to have to get support within the, uh, among the Middle Eastern countries like Saudi Arabia, uh, Qatar, uh, and the Gulf states to see what, um, if they would be willing to put up any kind of funding, provide troops, etc. Because that will make the situation much easier you have a, a broad international coalition like uh, like uh, George Bush had during the first Gulf War in 1991. But again, this remains to be seen. I think um, the, the Obama administration is going to pursue um, international engagement at the highest level. But at the same time, they're not averse necessarily to going in on their own to uh, sending a message um, that the issue of chemical weapons is, is important and will, will not be tolerated. Now, the, of course, the Syrian government is saying they're 100% positive that the weapons are not being used by, by them. They're not targeting civilians. Um, gut feeling, obviously, is that, that they're not telling the truth, but if there is some smoking gun or something that can be proven directly without uh, any 
uh, cannot uh, be uncontrovertible, then I think then you're going to get more and more countries willing to come on board just for that very reason. Um, uh, for, for the, we lost Rob for a second. Alan, why don't we go to you? Does Susan Rice have the capability to make that case in the UN? You mean Samantha uh, Power? Power, rather. I'm sorry. Well, look, the, the UN isn't where this thing is going to be played out. This is going to be played out in capitals um, from the, the 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 most high, the highest level of government. Samantha Power is smart. She's passionate. She can certainly work the halls of the United Nations. But the, the people who are in the United Nations aren't deciding how they're going to vote. Those decisions are made in the capitals. That's what John Kerry's job is. That's what, ha what Secretary Hagel's job is. That's what the president's job is. That's what Joe Biden's job is. They're the ones who have got to make the case to develop the alliance to strategize. Power is an important piece of that. She's not leading it. That's, that's okay. right. It, it, it gets back to the president. <clears throat> if the president does something that is credible, her job becomes a lot easier. If he doesn't, she's got an almost impossible job. All right, but let, let's look at Obama for a second, because, you know, we. this is not the first time we've heard of the allegations of the use of chemical weapons in Syria. And with his red line declaration, it, it, it seems that we've been down this road before. Bob Hines, does the president have the international credibility to really make this case to other heads of state, not only in our allies, but those who are looking very closely at the Syrian question, has he lost credibility as a result of not acting quickly enough? Well, the President of the United States always has credibility in international matters. I mean, he is the President of the United States here, he, he or she in the future. The reality is the President of the United States is a, is a very major player no matter what, no matter how much you like him or his policies or anything else, the United States is a major player. So that means that the president has a lot of impact. He's got a lot of friends out there. We have a lot of allies. There are a lot of problems. But the fact of the matter is the president of the United States is, in the, in the political world, international, international affairs world, just about as big a player as there is. Well, and you raised the question earlier about is he leading from behind, and uh, I think that he has been leading from behind, and I think you probably could make a good case that that was the appropriate way for him to handle it up to now. I don't think that's going to work anymore. Denise Kraft. The other thing that we need to remember is that we're quickly approaching the anniversary of September 11th. This is the end of August, so, you know, you, I'm hoping that this happens before September 11th because what I don't want is for folks to misuse whatever happens to the benefit or to the debt, actually more to the detriment of the United States. Um, when you're talking about Syria, you're not only talking about Assad's forces, but you're talking about the Al-Qaeda forces that have infiltrated into Syria. And so how will they use the attack if we decide to, bop, to drop something on Syria? And how will they use it against us? Yeah, but those are the, but those are the same people right now that are calling for the Americans, whether they're Al Qaeda or not. Syrian free, the uh, Syrian Free Army is the one calling for our intervention and the use of military strikes. Okay, that's what I'm talking about. Is the account the, the Al Qaeda forces that are spread out around that area that are fighting Assad? Yes, right. But still, you know, that that's that's a very difficult question. I mean, do we do we risk in fact? Signing with the Syrian Free Army and using our military resources to 
uh, interdict the Assad use of chemical weapons at the risk of empowering certain small sectors of Al-Qaeda. Bob Hines? If we keep on breathing, we're going to excite Al-Qaeda. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very bad statement. I love it. So I'm not worried. You know, I'm not worried about whether we're going to aggravate them or not. We're going to aggravate them just by existing. Right. The best thing we can hope for is find a way to kill them all. Right. Roughly, I hope you're back with us. Wow. That, that, wow. Yeah, don't, yeah. Don't, don't chemical weapons. Right. Don't, yeah. Hey, now there's a thought. Don't, don't, don't make Bob Hines angry. Hey, uh, Ralph, Wayne, last question to you. Um, as this all plays out, who are the winners, who are the losers in all this? Well, if... If it plays out in Obama's favor, certainly uh, the winners would be the Obama administration. If they can present the right case to the American people, if they can uh, bring on an international coalition, and they can uh, achieve some measured result in Syria. Um, the losers, obviously, would be the, the Assad government. It would uh, certainly be um, a, death, a death effort for them to uh, uh, be able to... Uh, Mounts a coalition, especially if it can be proven that it was the government that initiated these attacks. I definitely think Russia would uh, would lose out. Um, they're, they don't have any more client states in the Middle East, and they're desperately clinging on to uh, Syria as the last bastion. Um, but this this uh, this campaign has to be played out um, very, uh, in in a very methodical manner to ensure that U.S. interests are protected, to ensure that the American people's interests are safeguarded, and uh, to uh, help the Syrian people. I think that's what's galvanizing a lot of international support, um, uh, especially in, in Western Europe, is the uh, suffering of the uh, Syrian people. Right. Well, uh, we're coming up on our next break at the top of the hour. Uh, Ralph Winnie, thanks for joining us as always. Good having you. Uh, we'll Glad talk to be with everyone. We'll talk to you soon. When we come back... We're going to change gears a little bit and talk about the latest stern warning coming out of Treasury Secretary Jack Lew, who announced in a stern message to Congress that they need to act now on getting the debt ceiling issue resolved uh, because, oh, by the way, it's happening in October, not in January. we got to fix this thing quicker than we thought. Uh, that, when we come back, this is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's happy hour. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. Happy hour on Backroom Politics is sponsored by Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., America's premier cigar tavern, Stay with us as the roundtable continues after we order our drinks, order our cigars, and get ready for the second hour of Backroom Politics. Stay with us. We'll be back in two minutes.
we're back here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is the second hour of Backroom Politics. Bob, I don't know if you know that we're on the air. Yes. <laughs> okay, just making sure. Uh, we're changing gears from our last talk, and obviously we're going to be monitoring the uh, Syrian uh, issue very closely here in Washington, D.C., here at Backroom Politics. But we're going to change gears a little bit and talk about Stern warning coming out of the, sec uh, the Treasury Department. Secretary of the Treasury Jack Lew yesterday announced in a very stern message to uh, Congress that the debt ceiling is going to be hit in October rather than in January. And now, as a result, he has sent out the strong message of Congress needs to, and I quote, act now. And if I could put that in bold letters, I would. It doesn't do well for visuals here on radio. But that being said, uh, Bob Hines, Jack Lew has taken a very, very aggressive approach in telling Congress to get on the ball on a debt ceiling that, quite frankly, everybody in Washington missed the mark on. Well, I think he really has to do that. The president, I would like to see the president follow up on it himself. I mean, this is is a kind of a thing I think it wouldn't be a bad idea for the president to go on television and talk about the need to rapidly get this problem solved, the budget problem. There, there, are, uh, there are two problems that come up. Number one, the Congress is almost only about half, half of September in session because of holidays and whatnot. And in, if, we're, if we only have ten, eight or ten days there for work on the continuing resolution, to keep us the budget existing, and if we don't have enough time, we won't have enough time to get involved with the debt ceiling. It's going to be a terribly complex problem trying to solve those two huge financial problems in a very short time. Well, we've got a caller on the line. Let's see. Zachary, you're on with Backroom Politics. What's your question? My question is, why are you such a fat fuck? I'm sorry? Why are you such a fat fuck? Why do you feel that way, sir? Well, guy obviously had no 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 discussion whatsoever. Well, you know, hey, I'm very self-aware. Thanks for listening. Uh, I want to go back to the debt ceiling. When we talk about the debt ceiling uh, and we talk about everything that's going on, the reality is that uh, this is a this is a situation that we've seen coming for a long time. It's not anything new. We've been pushing this can down the road. Denise, I'll go to you. It seems that, you know, Congress has been sitting on it, sitting on it, sitting on it. Jack Lou's now coming out saying, hey, you got to move and move now or else everything's going to go to pot. Is Congress listening to the stern warning coming out of the Treasury? I think Congress is doing its best to be listening right now. But they're struggling. I mean, they not only do they have the debt ceiling, but they also have a fiscal responsibility that they have to approve the fiscal, you know, 2014, uh, you know, appropriation, and they haven't done that yet. So I mean, so we're all of a sudden we're going to have to start talking about budgets, and we're going to start talking about the debt ceiling at the same time. And by the way, we still my favorite, we still haven't passed the farm bill because those uh, provisions end at the end of September. This is going to be a mess, especially in nine days. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a mess. Alan Moore. Well, it's the Treasury Secretary's job to be the one who cries help when we run out of time on the debt limit. That date has been moving all around. It was going to be in June, and then it was going to be the end of the year. And the fact that it's mid-October is 
is no huge surprise. What What's important, though, is that October 15, that's sort of an approximate date, is is uh, coming up on us. And remember, the debt limit is simply a dollar figure that the uh, United States allows itself, authorizes itself to borrow to pay for all the accumulated debt of its history. And uh, our, our, in order under our law to continue to function, though, we have to raise the debt limit and we have to appropriate money, and you have to do both. What's, what's probably convenient is these things are going to happen about the same time. September 30th is the day when the current federal fiscal year runs out. So in order to spend money on October 1st, we have to do something. Typically, at this in recent years, that has meant something called a continuing resolution, where we take the current spending bills and we kick them down the road a little way while we try to sort out how to solve this for the next year. What we will do in October is combine the two and probably kick them both down the road. We'll have a modest increase in the debt limit, and we'll have a some kind of, which will like buy us another month or two and spending for another month or two and move towards the end of the year, which has become the almost automatic now in, in how we function. Um, the, there's, there's, if, if we do nothing on spending other than kick the can down the road, though, we've got this so-called sequester, which, was, which created some havoc for us last year, not as much as some were claiming, but plenty, and it grows. It was $45 billion last year. It's $84 billion of automatic across-the-board spending cuts this year. So the pressure mounts to take a bigger, broader look at how to fix all of this. Will we do it? One way or the other, we'll muddle through, but it's going to be a mess. We've got people on the right saying, we want to kill Obamacare. The best way to do that is to not fund it. Pass appropriations bills, a continuing resolution, for example, that provides no money to implement Obamacare. And most of the Republican leadership is saying, no, 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 we can't shut down the government. We won't win that fight. We can do serious down-the-road harm. So all these things are coming to the fore in the next six weeks. We'll muddle through. It'll be a mess. But those it's not bad that they're all coming together. Is there any indication <coughs> excuse me, at all that the uh, Tea Party is, is, is willing to cooperate in any fashion with this? No. No. And, and in fact, when I was listening on the radio this afternoon, there was an ad for a Tea Party rally that's going to be held on September 10th. Because as the uh, commentator on the, the advertisement said, you know, it's, uh, Congress, you know, uh, has done what it's done, and we need to, sh you know, show Congress that uh, to do, that they need to defund Obamacare, and therefore you need to show up in mass so that we can show Congress that they shouldn't fund it. So if you're going to have a rally on September 10th, I don't think that they're folding anytime soon. But Bob Hines, with now this being the third round of debt ceiling talks, the third round of kicking the can down the road, we still don't have a budget. We still don't have anything plausible as far as a compromise going. Do we, in fact, actually look at saying having somebody take a leadership role, whether it's in the White House or in Congress or in the administration, saying, look, sit down, knock out the deal, let's get together. Obviously, the person who has to 
lead that. Number one is the president. Number two is the speaker. And number three is Harry Reid. And four is uh, is the re Republican leader in the Senate, from, Senator from Kentucky, Mr. McConnell. These are the people who have to, in effect, rally their troops and, and get people together. And as, as Denise indicated, you know, it, there is little indication that the Tea Party is uh, backing down from their positions. Not all of the Tea Party people are talking about defunding the uh, Obamacare, but a lot of them are, and that's going to be a sideshow that's crazy. But they are certainly very strong about saying, in effect, we are not going to just you know, willy-nilly provide money for the debt ceiling and uh, a, a budget resolution and not get something in return with respect to the entitlement programs which need to be restructured because they're killing, they're killing the budget. The reality is the president is going to say no to that and, we, and then there's going to be a problem. There's going to be a big problem because they're going to have to find a way to everybody get together and, and, and make some deals and the deal makers are in the minority, in a, a very small minority. And there just aren't enough people who are who realize how that you can't you can't play games with the debt ceiling. You can't run a country on a continuing resolution on a continuous basis. You, you have got to have some stability so so managers can plan. In the in managers both in the private sector and in the government sector. And the reality is we're going to have a very short season because it's only nine or ten days of of congressional sitting in uh, in September, and then you only got maybe ten days in October. So you have very little time. You have maybe twenty legislative days between now and the time that we get to the uh, uh, the debt ceiling crisis and the budget crisis. And I don't know how we're going to be able to do it that quickly. Uh, I would love to figure out uh, what would happen, how we could get it done, but the reality is it's going to be really, really difficult, and there's going to be some awful late sessions, and there'll be a lot of people sleeping on cots in the in the in the back rooms of their offices over on Capitol Hill come September and October. Well, but again, the bigger question is, Alan Moore, understanding that tax revenue can fluctuate month to month. Uh, but how did we miss the target so badly on this one? I don't think we did. You don't think no, so? No, I don't right? think we did. I, I don't. I don't. I mean, you were talking about this January figure. I was operating for the last few months on the assumption that it was coming up in October. Maybe I forgot something. Maybe I missed it. 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 It's. It. It's something that does vary largely on the the rate at which revenues show up, and then over the years. The Treasury has been more and more creative about figuring out how to borrow a little here and hold off something there to stretch this out. You do get to an end point where you really run out of options for doing things, but but I'm I'm simply not aware of a big miss. Um, you know, there's a lot of people who are looking at this stuff constantly. I was also aware that just in the last few weeks there was a suggestion that. The debt limit froze for, or not the debt limit, the, the size of the national debt as reported by Treasury froze for weeks, weeks at a time. That was a little bizarre too. I'm, 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 I'm operating from secondhand reports, but it, it, it is a reminder that there are some games you can play, but eventually we blow through that 
limit because we're still spending in the neighborhood of $800 billion a year more than we're bringing in in taxes. Congressman Al. <clears throat> I'm dreaming now, okay? Okay, please. Uh, I'm wondering where the Democratic leadership in the House is on all of this. It seems to me that if you, you are realistic, you know something's got to be done with entitlements. And no Democrat's going to like what the Republicans want to do with that. If Nancy Pelosi were to put together a realistic plan to, to reform entitlements, <clears throat> pissing off some of her own people to be sure, but putting them where in the democratic philosophy they will do the least harm. You might get something moving. You give the speaker something to react to if he if he if he's got the guts to react in any kind of a positive way to and he's he's got a huge problem doing that. But it seems to me that the Democrats in the House have been sitting there watching this disaster go on and they are in the position, I think, to do something if they only would. Uh, sometimes you don't want the other party to do some of these difficult things because they won't do them right, as you see it, from your party position. But if you know that it's going to have to happen, why not throw out some things and stir the pot a, a bit and see if you can't get some motion going? Then he's crap. And I have to wonder, I have to share the same wonderment with, with Congressman Allen. What are the Democrats doing? I'd like to let you in on a little bit of inside baseball, uh, folks. When members of Congress go um, off for their August recess, what they usually go off with is a list of talking points that's prepared by their respective staffers. So you'll go off with talking points for the Democrats, you know, they'll, they'll say certain things and the Republicans will say other things. So what, what I've noticed with the Republicans talking in August they seem to be all on message talking about Obamacare, talking about defunding Obamacare. And that's You're talking about the Republicans or the yeah, Democrats? The Republicans, Republicans are all talking, so they're very on message, which makes the staffers who wrote those talking points thrilled um, that they're, they're all on message. But I haven't seen that same type of messaging coming out of the Democratic side. So my question would be, what was the message that Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi sent to them to say, what are you supposed to be talking about in August? Yeah, be interesting. Bob Hines. Um, I agree that uh, uh, I haven't heard much what the Democrats are talking about, and I agree also with what Denise says that the only thing I'm I'm hearing is um, defunding Obamacare. Uh, that is not the position of the Speaker's office. Yeah, uh, that's Alan Moore. It just isn't. I mean, but the point of the oh. matter is. Why isn't something else coming out? Why isn't there something more? Well, you know, it, it, it's it, it's kind of odd because when we see the talking points coming out of people like Ted Cruz, Rand Paul, yeah. that crowd, we're starting to see more and more rhetoric coming out of we will shut down government. There's more of a hard line coming out of it. We're not seeing that from the traditional insiders, i.e. Tom Coburn, i.e. Uh, Orrin Hatch, that crowd. Alan Moore? Yeah, I I couldn't disagree more that that's 
the united message coming out of Republicans. Yeah. There's about six Republicans yeah. who are getting most of the press. Yeah. That's it. That's admitted. Right. <laughs> but, but that's because the press is lazy, and other people are operating much more quietly. But you've seen and a lot of people. nothing else is going on. You've, you've, yeah. you've, 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 heard, you've heard from from a lot of people, like a Tom Coburn, who's a very well-respected conservative, who says, uh, or, or Congressman Coe in the House, um, some smart, thoughtful people, not just the leaders, who are saying, no, we don't like Obamacare. We have voted against Obamacare. We are not going to stop government over Obamacare. We're right. going to do our best to unravel it. We'd like to... We'd like to, to, to uh, to renegotiate it. We would like to kill it. We would like to do all sorts of things to it. We will not shut down government, though, because we don't think that will work. We don't think it will succeed. We think it will redound to harm the Republicans. Right. And, 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 and I'd say probably three-quarters of the Republicans in both houses think that is true. Correct. I mean, you know, I saw on C-SPAN the other night, uh, Senator Tom Coburn down in Muskogee, Oklahoma, at a town hall meeting. They're talking, you know, the constituents are defund Obamacare, defund Obamacare. And and Tom Coburn said, look, that ship has sailed. We got other problems we got to deal with. We're not going to shut down government. That's just not an option. Yet we see sophomore and freshmen... Yeah. Like t- Ted Cruz and and Rand Paul and even Marco Rubio to an extent, they keep coming out. They're the ones getting the press. Now the general electorate thinks, well, that's the position of the general yeah. Republican Party. And, and you think about this, as Alan said, if you want to if you want to name a more conservative person philosophically, and a man who understands the budget process and the expenditures more than almost anybody else around, Tom Tom Coburn is your man. And the fact that he is saying we're not going to defund Obamacare ought to send a message to some of his co- younger colleagues who who are basically just haranguing the public. Republicans, that doesn't play to the, media. the militant base. What well, plays into the media? Because that makes Ted Cruz and Rand Paul going off on a tangent saying we're going to shut down government if we don't defund Obamacare. Well, wouldn't Obama it be nice? Makes great yeah. TV. It does, but I'd like also to some of some of the more responsible media people start reminding the people, reminding the people like Orrin Hatch and the people like Dave Camp and the people like Tom Coburn, all of whom are much more alert to the cost of government and what has to be done, and they're not saying a damn thing the way Cruz. Well, they're not getting thirty second sound bites. No, they're not. Denise Crack. And that's what's concerning me. I mean, I. Uh, I listened to a C-SPAN radio program on Friday night, and uh, Ted Cruz was at an event up in New Hampshire with Kellen Ayotte. And uh, it was remarkable, because not only was he bashing Democrats, which I expect, but he wasn't being very complimentary to the Republican Party either. And, and, and so when you have somebody saying things that he was saying, I mean, not only does that energize folks that um, are not the moderates, it makes it much more difficult for him to come back to D.C. and work with a colleague that he hasn't been very complimentary to. And here's where, here's where I think if the Democrats in the House, Nancy Pelosi, or the President, either one, were to begin to raise other issues over which the parties disagree, other issues, on how do you reform Social Security, how do you reform Medicare, and what have you, it, it 
they can no longer be Johnny OneNote on Obamacare. They're then going to have to say, we don't like Obamacare, and we don't like what you're doing on Social Security, and we don't like the da-da-da-da-da. And it seems to me it spreads out the debate, and it lets these uh, these Johnny OneNotes, uh, puts them in a kind of a hole where they've got a, a more complicated message they've got to have, and you might actually get a little progress uh, in, out of it to boot. Alan Moore, I want to react to, to, to Al's thoughts because it's 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 pretty interesting what Al is suggesting because the path we're on is another crisis, another cliff that will ultimately be worked out with the White House, the Senate Democrats and Republicans because you need 60 votes in the Republicans and the House Republicans. And the Democrats are standing on the side um, with their hands in their pockets, looking around, and Al is suggesting that it doesn't automatically have to be that way. Maybe it will end up that way, but it will sure end up that way if Al's former colleagues don't try, don't do anything, just stand there twiddling their thumbs, hoping for the best, taking potshots shots at offers that the president makes because that speaks to their base when the president says maybe we can tweak the CPI adjustment for Social Security and they will they will yell and scream rather than say we don't like that approach but there's an alternative maybe we could look at Mr. President um, as it is right now they are totally on the sideline and it's a, it's a tough crowd that's going to have to sort this stuff out. And the Republicans really aren't in a position to be able to do that, to, 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 to bring forth. They, they've been studying it. They've been working it. I think they've got plans in their desk drawers yeah. for dealing with entitlements. Uh, but uh, they're hesitant to bring those out because then the Democrats start the no, 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 no that we're hearing out of the Republicans. If a Democrat did it, there would still be no, no, no's, uh, but it, it, it changes the whole dynamic of that debate. If the, if the Democrats in the House were to move in that direction, I think you'd find an interesting dynamic in the House. I think you would find uh, some of the what you might call the establishment Republicans, Republicans more than more or less the senior members, uh, the leadership, and that would probably welcome a discussion. The Tea Party might scream and yell, but that might be a very good thing because it might it might it might push them farther in the public eye out of the mainstream and make them less effective. I agree. Yeah. One, one, one of the things that's missing, and we've certainly talked about it around this table on many occasions, is is the lack of relationships between the president and key leaders of either party in either house. So what you don't have any sense of is that the president is on the phone with Pelosi or Boehner or Reid or McConnell or any of their lieutenants. Um, it, it is an ongoing, lingering problem where the personal relationships that sometimes were there when a president was elected or that evolved because of personalities and priorities still aren't present, and it is still 
a major challenge. But even uh, in the Republican this. Party, though, Alan, we, 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 you know, the, the lieutenants that we talk about, we haven't heard a lot out of Eric Cantor, the majority leader in the in the House. Uh, we haven't heard uh, anything out of Kevin McCarthy, the, the the majority whip in the House. Uh, those are key figures that can help drive the speaker's agenda of coming up with compromise. We're not hearing a lot from them. We don't want to right? hear. We no. don't want to hear a lot from no. them. No. We want to hear that the speaker and the president and and for that matter, Pelosi and Reed and McConnell have, are are in some kind of discussion and talk. We hear nothing. And I think what we're hearing is what's happening. But we would think, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Denise and Al, I'll put this to you, one of the figures on the Democratic side that we think we hear from and we haven't heard a lot from that could help drive this is Steny Hoyer, the, the minority or the co-leader or deputy minority leader or whatever his title is today. We're not hearing a lot out of Steny Hoyer now. Oh, wait a minute. Now, it wouldn't be fair to ask Steny Hoyer to step up until Ms. Pelosi steps up. It, the now, Republicans do it all the time. They're idiots sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> no, the fact Bob, I want to, I want to make sure you're, you're a Republican, no, right? No, no. Oh, okay. Listen, I think you will. You if you have watched in the last number, many numbers of months, the, the leadership in the House is working much well better together than they have in the past. The problems that they, Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, Boehner and uh, Mr. Cantor, uh, Cantor uh, have been removed. Right. And and everything is working very smoothly there. The biggest problem, but you, but in the in the Democratic side, I am sure that it would be very unlikely that Mr. Uh, Hoyer would step out without already uh, letting the, the the minority leader lead. It would be very very dangerous. Congressman Al. Danny Hoyer is in a very difficult position. He is number two to a huge number one. And uh, he, I doubt if he tried, not in my, and this is not like a courage, I just think that if he tried, he would be shut down just overnight. And I Frankly, and it's not anything new I've said on this program, Nancy Pelosi should have retired gracefully at the end of the last election, which she lost, quote unquote, uh, in terms of the vote in the House. Uh, but she's there, and she's got uh, a lot of loyal liberals that are going to be very supportive of her. Uh, so I'm afraid there's nobody but Steny who could do it. Uh, excuse me, nobody but Nancy that, that could do it. And I think she is very disinclined to do it. She is the the liberal Tea Party leader, if you will. But the, the reality, we've got one more, we got one more minute, is do, do we really think that we can see a compromise before we hit October and after they come back from recess, Alan Moore. Well, we have to. We have to get some kind of a deal. Whether it, it, and, is it another so, can kicked down the road? Well, probably. I mean, we there, there were there were two quotes this week that were interesting. One came from from Speaker Boehner. Quote: We are not going to raise the debt ceiling without real cuts in spending. Followed upon the next day by the White House press secretary saying, "Quote." We will not negotiate with Republicans in Congress over Congress's responsibility to pay the bills that Congress has racked up. 
period. So we got the battle lines drawn pretty clearly, pretty publicly, direct quotes. Um, something has to give. Even if you kick the can down the road, that's a compromise. It's a temporary compromise, but it's a compromise. Nobody seems inclined to say, never mind, shut it down. So there will be, by definition, some kind of compromise. We will muddle through. It'll be a mess. It'll get done. Denise? Part of the pressure that's going to be put on them is outside pressure, including big business, that's going to be losing out if the government can't function. Bob Hines? No doubt it has to be solved. Al, Congressman Al? Well, the only answer I have to that is a very long one, and I, I, I won't go there, but I have felt from the very beginning that Nancy Pelosi was going to be a, uh, a uh, serious impediment to getting anything done. She has done that very shrewdly by just being quiet. Uh, and letting the Republicans make their total fools of themselves. Uh, she is. She would clearly make problems for herself in her own caucus if she did as I suggested. But she has more control over her caucus than Boehner has over his caucus. Even right. <laughs> and, and she could, I think, sit down and explain this is a way we get out of that and ultimately can take credit for it. Uh, she would have to sell it to her partisans on the basis that we can then go out and campaign on the fact that we did something, that we did something to get us off of the dime, we did something to get Congress to do something. There are all those arguments that she could then use. But I watched her in her early days as Speaker. Uh, Abba even said about, uh, about Arafat, he never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And I have watched her miss opportunity after opportunity to make the Republicans look like idiots uh, or could cause real problems for them by being proactive. And she's essentially uh, outraising money, I think. Wow. The correct answer is until we see somebody that has political leadership and political courage to really move this thing forward, we're going to kick the can down the road. That's the correct answer. I just went John McLaughlin on everybody. No doubt. Hey, uh, we'll, when we come back, uh, this week commemorates the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights March on Washington and Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. We're going to talk about race relations a little bit when we come back. This is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom in Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250 from cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? 
Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. Again, we're having to remind Bob that we are live on the air again. Bob is always live on the air. Oh, okay, there we go. There we go. Hey, uh, this week, a uh, very historical week here in Washington, D.C., and, and nationwide. Uh, this week commemorates the 50th anniversary of the Civil Rights March of 1963, uh, where Dr. Martin Luther King gave a very prolific uh, speech, the uh, now famous I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, but, you know, we, we've seen the march uh, this past weekend, a large march uh, in the same venue happened uh, over the weekend, and a an actual similar march is going to be happening here in Washington tomorrow on the Mall and on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. But it does make the question is, you know, we've talked about race relations here uh, a little bit or extensively in the past couple of weeks, race relations here in the U.S., but when we look at Dr. Martin Luther King's speech of I Have a Dream, the, the question I have for everybody is, have we realized the dream? Have we realized Dr. Martin Luther King's... Uh, are we better? Not. Why do you say that, Al? Because... This is very complicated. And, and i got to tell you, Shelley's has been a key place over the last 10 years for me to learn to get closer to black people and talk with them socially and find out that while I think most white people think the civil rights thing is over, we've done it, you know, everything's equal and everything's fine. You talk to black people and say, uh uh-uh, it hasn't even, it hasn't, we've scratched the surface and we need to go farther. And white people are saying, you've got to be kidding. Well, they need to, they need, they need to talk to some black people, uh, and find out what they're thinking and include that in their view over whether we have resolved that problem or not. I think we've got a hell of a start on it. Thank God to Martin Luther King, who who prepared the ground, and Lyndon Johnson, who took advantage of it and implemented it. But now we need to get inside the minds of white people to understand better how black people feel about it. And that's just not happening. But Bob Hines, I mean, you know, we, we have come a long way in race relations. I mean, the, the American populace, 
uh, electorate elected an African-American president to serve as our chief executive and our commander-in-chief. Uh, we re-elected him for a second term. Uh, a lot of what we heard out of Dr. King in the I Have a Dream speech was to see that kind of visible equality. Have we seen that visible equality recently? And is that sustainable? Well, I think Al is exactly right. I mean, we have come a huge distance since 1963. But there is a significant distance to go. And it and we have to understand, as you know, here we are five, five white folks sitting around. We have to understand that it that there's a we whole... At least cease to be five white men. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's true. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. But we we have we have responsibilities. We have to continue to re, to, to to make sure that opportunities are there. Um, and we have we have to do we have to continue to do it. We have to do probably more of it. And it, it has to be part of the structure. It isn't just something we do and we stop doing it. We have to keep doing it. We have to make sure that the opportunities are there, the school, that the schools are better. I mean, to me, the worst thing in the world is when is we get in, in some of the areas of this country, uh, the black kids are, are, in, are in schools that are highly inferior. And you cannot expect people to, without an education to get a job. I mean, the world, the world is not, is, is, you know, we, we don't have that many people anymore who, who just, you know, cut grass or something. And we have to realize that, 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 that the people who, who don't have an education are not necessarily stupid. That's right. They haven't had the opportunity. They, 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 you, you find some extremely bright black people out there that are mopping floors. Yes. And that's a crisis, and that shouldn't be. But the reality is... Our educational system has not been responsive enough, mainly in in, in, in two places. Some of the really big cities, uh, which are uh, have not done well, and in the rural areas. Those two, those in the, in, that's mostly in the south. I'm reminded of a wonderful line from a, a group, a group uh, an English group, years ago, uh, that uh, did satire, and they said that. He says, well, I, I understand that they're going to visit America. I understand that, uh, that, that, uh, that the blacks are sweeping the country. And the other one says, yes, it's the only job they can get. You know? <laughs> <laughs> See, crap. Well, okay, this, this is the 50th anniversary of the I Have a Dream speech. But there was another speech that was given 150 years ago, and that was the Gettysburg Address. Um, and, and I want to bring that up because we're not that far from the Gettysburg <clears throat> Address. In fact, uh, when I was a kid, um, one of my family members used to tell me stories about meeting people who had fought at Gettysburg. He had, uh, as a young Army lieutenant, had been at the 75th anniversary of the Gettysburg uh, Battle. And he had the opportunity of meeting people uh, both on the north and the south side who had fought there. And he actually met two soldiers, one from the south and one from the north, who looked up and, and uh, could pinpoint exactly where they were shot at. Now, we're 150 years, but we're not that far from people's memories. Um, and when you start thinking about how close we are, not only how close we are in history, 
but you see what we have to go through on a day-to-day -day basis. But when you start talking about African Americans, I did an informal survey this summer uh, looking at Confederate flags, because apparently I got to see a lot of them. Uh, I got to see them in West Virginia, in Virginia, North Carolina, uh, South Carolina, Georgia. And I, and I talked to several of my family members down there, and I said, what's going on? You know, why are you, you know, why are people in these areas still flying the Confederate flag? And the answer I got pretty consistently was, well, people are proud of their heritage. Well, I'm I'm glad I can hear that out of a um, out of a white person, but I don't think I would be getting the same answer if I was talking to an African American person. I don't think that they would be saying we're celebrating our heritage by looking at the Confederate flag. To African Americans, that brings up issues that happened 150 years ago. So until we start addressing issues that happened 150 years ago, like what? Like what? Like what? The fact that we own black people, the people own slaves, and okay. that and that not only did people own slaves, but what happened to black families because of the way in which they were sold, and which way in which families were broken apart. I mean, when you have families that were never actually units because, well, they were more um, valuable if you broke them up, if women would serve in the kitchen and men would serve in the, in the fields then that doesn't build a family unit. I mean, those of us who came or were immigrants from other parts of, the, of uh, you know, Europe, of Asia, had family unions. African Americans did not because of what happened 150 plus to 200 years ago. But, are, but how, how long do we have to relive that? I mean, we don't have slavery now. We don't, we don't see the dominance of the white population that we use. The answer is as long as it takes. Yes. Well, but have, but this brings up Bob Hines. I'll let you go before. Uh, this is the thing that drives me crazy all the time. The black family. Most of the black children born are born to women who aren't married. By a two to one at least. Why? Why do the black preachers, why do the blacks respected leadership like uh, Mr. Sharpton or uh, uh, Mr. Uh, yeah, Reverend they, Jackson. They never talk about that. They always talk about other things. Well, you have Bill Cosby that does talk yeah. about yeah, that. Exactly. And he's vilified in his community yeah. for making statements well, you know, of cowboy up and be a good father. Well, Stay yeah. home and, and meet your responsibility. And that's the problem that the black unit, unit world has to fix by itself. Okay. The whites can't help them do that. Thomas and now, that's well, another thing I learned here at Shelley's. Now, Shelley's, uh, and, and I don't mean to, 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 to take issue with any of your commercials for this place, because I love this place and everybody should come. But my martini costs $15 with the tip. There are a lot of black people here in this bar that can afford $15 martinis. And they are educated and they have good jobs. Now you sit down and talk with them. And in, eventually someone will say, well, my father always taught me. Or my dad always said. Or, These are all children that came from black families and they're doing well and education was the important thing and the dad had the money to get them there and what had well the dad was existing he was in the family the dad existed now you you, you go down to southeast and start you're going to find a lot of 
children whose uh, fathers are not in the home, are not giving them instructions, uh, are not uh, encouraging them toward education, and their chances are of ending up mopping floors is uh, much higher than it would be. Yeah, otherwise. more you had a comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I get uncomfortable when we talk about about the clientele of Shelley's as being in any way representative of the of the of the greater African American community. I, They're sort I, of I, one I, percenters. That isn't um, what I was saying at all. Well, I, was dem- I, I was trying to point out the demonstration of the importance of what is not happening in enough black families. Well, and 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 it and it clearly is not that the march in 1963 was not about Martin Luther, Martin Luther King and his speech. The day after the the the, the event, the speech was not referenced in the Washington Post story. It has come to represent that day. The job was about the, the, the whole day was the march for jobs and freedom. President Kennedy tried to kill the march because they were so afraid that it was going to turn violent. They had police on every street corner. They made they they they, National they, Guard they, were... they convinced the the hotels to jack up their prices so that people would have to go home that night, which which all happened. It turned out to be amazingly calm and peaceful and meaningful and after a period of time people discovered that that uh, Martin Luther King had given this extraordinary speech that a lot of people couldn't hear when you put 250,000 200 250,000 people out there on the mall with the technology of those days most people aren't going to hear it we got to hear it later via television and recordings and so on it was this extraordinary thing we have come so far and have so far to go with this whole problem. It's about education. It's about the family. It's about what African Americans do for themselves. It's about what the rest of us do to help support. We're all in this. The only, the, probably the best thing going, along with some of these leaders who have devoted their lives, sacrifice themselves in many cases is generational change is occurring. If we talk to our grandchildren or our children, we realize that what they the world they grew up in is different than the world we grew up in and the grandchildren it's even further. Here, the, here. the acceptance of intermarriage, the the, 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 the notion that jobs really do matter, that family really matters. Some of the things we've tried to do to help have hurt the family. Sad to say, that's a fact. But, you know, I I, I just want to make this comment is, you know, we keep, so far all I've heard is this discussion of the black family, the white family, the black struggle, the, the white acceptance. At no time do I hear, even in today's media, I blame the media a lot for this, is we have not yet become a colorblind society. You ask any any people I know, they will tell you I'm probably the most colorblind person there is. <laughs> I'm careful you're going to hurt yourself, patting yourself no, on the I, back. No, 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 I mean, no, I am going to say that because the, the reality is I don't I'll, look at... I'll, 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 I'll reinforce it. Yeah, I, 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 I've watched you here in... in, in, in there's hardly a black person that walks through the door that you don't but, know. But I, I don't look at them as a black person or a white person. They're people I know. We we are so focused 
on the African-American stereotype or the white American stereotype until we become truly colorblind. We're not going to advance. And I blame the media. You know, what we saw in the Trayvon Martin shooting was Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton go to Sanford, Florida, have rally after rally after rally calling outrage and injustice. But when a white Australian baseball player is shot in cold blood in Oklahoma, where's the outrage? When a World War II veteran is randomly attacked in Seattle, Washington, and murdered, where's the outrage? We don't see the outrage. Why? Because we have not become colorblind. I blame the media, and I blame parts of Parts of the white media and parts of the black media. Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton are two of the worst. I I agree with that. As is people like Glenn Beck and the other side. I agree with you. But but I'm forced to say this because uh, uh, Alan just talked about being colorblind. My my, uh, youngest daughter was married to a black man and my grandchildren absolutely adored him and my she's now 24 but my four-year-old granddaughter who was always very outspoken was sitting around listening and someone said uh, said that Al whose name happened to be Al too uh, Al is black and she said he is not he's brown <laughs> now that's colorblind I mean she, it is she had no idea why they were using the term black when he was clearly not black. We, you know, we are, we are so we are so tempted to look back, and if you don't, and I get the whole if you don't look at history, we're bound to repeat it. But the reality still dictates is we still go around with color filters mm-hmm. on our eyes, mm-hmm. and that is where the problem lies. And until we can show, there should be outrage for the death of Trayvon Martin. There should be outrage for the death of a World War II veteran who was senselessly beaten and murdered in Seattle, just as there was the senseless, because I'm bored murder of an Australian baseball player in in, in Oklahoma. No outrage in those two. You know, I've got to disagree with that. You, what? you cannot make that kind of parallel. There was all sorts of outrage at the death of this Australian. It's become an international Where? incident. Where? All, Where's all Al places. Sharpton? Where? I don't care about Al Sharpton. He can do whatever he wants. He is not the measure for me of outrage. There was enormous outrage. But these were teenage kids two blacks and a white driving along, let's kill somebody, and they shoot him down. They're picked up, they're arrested, and they're going to spend probably most of their lives in jail. That's plenty of, that's that's adequate outrage for me. If Sharpton doesn't want to get into that, I don't care. Is he a, is he an opportunist? Absolutely he is. I'm no big fan of his. I didn't like the, uh, the, the Saturday event down on the mall because it was Al Sharpton's event. Tomorrow it's the president on the mall. That's the event I'm interested in. But I don't think you can make that parallel that 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 incident had any direct parallels with George Zimmerman wandering around with his gun, trying to be neighborhood watch guy and shooting a guy who looks suspicious. It it's just two different things, and I just reject the parallel. 
If we're going to have that kind of a concern, then we're going to be busy every single day of our lives at wanton, needless killings but that you, may you or may not have a racial ma- element you, to you it. You are making the but, underlying point that I'm trying to say is it, instead of rallies and outrage, let the criminal justice system work its due diligence. Let the criminal justice system work. It's what's in our Constitution. It is what everybody is signed on to. That is the law of the land. Don't don't inflate or inflame the situation by having rallies. I I absolutely... Sometimes you actually have to have rallies so that you get the point. Because if you're going to start talking about, you know, our criminal justice system, are we going to start talking about, uh, you know, the stop and frisk up in New York, which, you know impacted more minorities than it did Anglo-Saxon. Come on, Justin. I mean... We're, 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 we don't want to go into that one. We're not going to relitigate stop and frisk. That's a whole other show. Well, I understand that. But, 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 but what I'm saying is that sometimes you do have to have rallies so that you can raise people's awareness to certain issues. And I have to agree with Alan that if you start talking about what happened with the World War II veteran and what happened in Oklahoma, yes, there was an incredible amount of outrage. Yes, there were a lot of folks talking about it. And yes, something is going to be done about it. Well, no. Going back to the March on Washington and, and the, the, the white American fear that grew out of that, I got a call. I was, I was working for another congressman, my predecessor, Lloyd Meads, and I got a call at about uh, 11 o'clock at night was from home, so it was eight o'clock there, and and the guy said, "Are, are you you work for Congressman?" He says, "I want to know who is paying for the cleanup. I want to know when all those people come and leave the mess behind. Who's paying for the cleanup?" Well, I didn't know, so I'm driving into work with the congressman, and I tell him this, and he gets furious. Now he happened to be on the Interior Committee. He hit. He hit the office at 8 o'clock in the morning, and he had somebody high-level in the Interior Department on the phone about like that, and he got the information. They had paid for the funds up front. Park Service requires that kind of thing. They had, they had done everything that anybody else that had a message. And here's the part I love. Lloyd called the guy immediately. Because he said, you were so concerned you called my staffer at 11 o'clock at night, so I wanted to call you right away. Well, now, it was 8 o'clock here. <laughs> West Coast. I remember I made the call, and there was a kid answering, uh, and, and, and I said, could you speak? So we, this father, who was had barely sobered up, answered the phone, and Lloyd very kindly told him all all of this. He immediately turned it to gun legislation. (laughs) (laughs) No good deed. Absolutely. Absolutely. The Looney Tunes are the Looney Tunes. Yes, they are. But I I will say that I think this is a great, great week in Washington. It commemorates a great, great display of 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 Americans truly coming together, nonviolent. It, those are one of those instances that says, you know what? What happened in 1963 on the March in Washington, even though it was for jobs and equality and seeing the aftermath of the great speech that Dr. Martin Luther King gave, that is what makes this country so great. 
period, point blank. Alan Moore, last word. Quick, quick point. The, the, the Life magazine issue right after the march featured who on the cover? Wasn't Martin Luther King? Wasn't Mahalia Jackson or Joan Baez or Bob Dylan or, or John Lewis, who, who all participated? It was A. Philip Randolph, the, the heart and soul behind it, and a man named Bayard Rustin who yeah. was the organizational genius who made it happen. Byard had been arrested in 1953 on a morals charge. He was a gay man and, and spent 60 days in jail. The, 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 the leadership of the, of the civil rights movement wanted to keep him under wraps because they were concerned that it was going to be embarrassing to him. Martin Luther King, to his great credit, said, this man is my friend. He taught me the Gandhi methods of, of nonviolence, which he studied in India, uh, Bayard did. I got to know Bayard in 1980 on the Thai-Cambodia border. One wow. of the most beautiful men I ever knew. He died seven years later. We were all in his death. The president this week gave him posthumously, 26 years too late, but better late than never, the Medal of Freedom. Um, he was a key force behind that march right and we're all in his great bed. point great ending point here hey uh we'll have uh tell me a story next week but on behalf of congressman al swift bob Hines, Denise Krep, and alan moore i'm your moderator justin russell we'll be back next week live from shelley's back room 1331 f street in the heart of our nation's capital washington dc bob 90. the time to play right here at shelley's the time to bleed. The time to bleed. The time to bleed. The place to be. What the hell? Don't believe it. Man, you're on fire today. You're an angry man. We're cutting you off. Yeah, you're done. Enough for a for you. Don't even go there. Don't even go there. Hey, we'll see you next week. Live, same time. Blog Talk Radio. Thanks. And special thanks to our producer, Alyssa B